Well, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Millennial in the Middle. I'm Connor DeLynn, and as always, thanks for listening. Today, I'm going to play for you an interview I did with Courtney Hill. It's been cool for me doing this podcast because I've been able to have a lot of awesome guests on that have very unique experiences in life and different perspectives that I think we can all grow from, that we learn something from. And with Courtney, uh, I met Courtney a few years back. I have not seen her for a couple years. And it was funny. I was on Instagram one day. We just followed each other on social media for a while. And I had a thought pop into my mind that, Connor, you should ask her to do a podcast. Maybe she would be an interesting guest. And it was funny because I don't know if I really had a reason to do that. I'd seen Courtney make a lot of posts on social media about self-worth and body image and loving yourself, self-acceptance, and I'd read a few of her captions in the past, but I didn't necessarily even know what Courtney's story was. And But I, I felt this little prompting or desire, whatever it was, to just say, hey, send her a message. And so I did. I reached out to Courtney. I said, hey, I'm, I'm doing this podcast, and I'm curious if you'd be interested to come on. If you were, what would your story be? So I, I just kind of opened it up. We jumped on a phone call, and I had no idea that Courtney went through a battle with uh, pretty extreme anorexia uh, to the point where she was in full treatment, uh, situation very similar to rehab, uh, four different times, and has made the recovery from that. And in this conversation I had with her on the phone, we talked about some of the misconceptions people have with eating disorders in general, specifically with anorexia, about how it's really a mental illness, not just some vain thing of a way to lose weight. It's so, so much more than that. I learned so much in my few minute conversation with her that I said, you know what, I need to have her on the show. Let's do this. We've created this platform for open conversations to increase our empathy for others. And I really enjoyed this. Um, I think you'll like this interview a lot. Uh, There's a point towards the end that actually both of us, as she's talking about her breakthrough, Uh, where we both kind of get emotional and tear up a little bit. And I felt that as she explained feeling happy and feeling like she broke through and what that meant to her and how she now tries to hold on to that feeling in day-to-day life. I don't care who you are. All of us have things we're struggling with. We all have our issues. None of us are perfect. And I think when we start to open up our minds a little bit to the experiences of others and how we may be able to help and support each other, that's what being in the middle means a lot of times, is being in the middle of a crazy world that we're all just trying to get through and be happy and be a good person along the way. I think this interview will leave you feeling that way, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. All right, Courtney Hill. Thank you so much for joining me today and doing this. You know, I've talked a lot about in this podcast, the ability to be able to have more empathy, Mm -hmm. that desire to want to learn and understand from other people's perspectives and opinions. And a lot of times it's difficult to do because a lot of these conversations are a little uncomfortable or a little awkward. And I think this is definitely one of those times, right? Where it's hard to know you want to support people. You want to lend a hand. You want to be a good human being. But that knowing what to say, it's a lot easier just to say nothing. Yeah. Right? 
And so I think with this today, you know, I talk about the podcast rules. I talk about going into it, not being divisive, going in with an open mind. I've said how that that really relates to me. That relates to all of our listeners. But then it really requires guests that are willing to come on and share their story and be vulnerable and talk about those situations. And so I couldn't do this without you. Thank you so much. Yes, of course. Um, I appreciate you coming on. So as we jump into this, you know, the other thing I want to remind everyone, this isn't a sad story today, right? Like this is an awesome story of recovery and coming back and what you've learned and how that transformation has taken place. And I, from our conversations that we've had so far, have been so impressed with your story, your perspective on life. I can't wait to share with everyone else. Thank you. So let's dive into it. Uh, Give me first a little bit of your background, kind of your history and upbringing, uh, just kind of what you got you here. Yeah, so I hear from Utah, born and raised, second youngest of six kids, just your typical happy Utah family, you know, just pretty cookie cutter family, honestly. (laughs) Um, Grew up dancing, which I feel like, I mean, dancing competitively pretty seriously. So that maybe played into my story in some ways, but yeah, honestly, pretty just normal, happy childhood. So, okay. So happy childhood. And as you you go through this, I, I think it's hard for a lot of people to start to think like, man, well, what, what happened? Is this just certain people that would have a mental illness or depression or anxiety? You name the list, yeah. right? People are always trying to look for what must have gone wrong, mm-hmm. right? Or there's something so extreme. You're, you didn't have an extreme lifestyle. Yeah. Pretty happy, pretty in the middle. Yeah. And uh, with that, when would you say that kind of changed for you? Like what started to put you down that path? Yeah, so... When I was 15, so barely in high school, started dating an older boy, senior kid. So that, I was pretty naive to the reality of it. That's honestly what triggered all of it. Um, I've never been great at asking for help or asking, just even opening up, I guess. I was always seen as just this really happy-go-lucky class clown, just funny girl. And so... I was going through something hard and scary, but no one knew that. And I wouldn't let anyone know that because I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that was happening. But deep down, it's like my subconscious could see what was going on around me and it was affecting me mentally, but I wouldn't ask for help or talk to people or yeah, I just, I didn't talk to anyone. I kept everything stuffed down. And so that's, that's really what led to everything kind of. Yeah, falling apart. Sure. Well, let's talk. Before we talk about that, I like to a lot of times kind of give some definitions mm-hmm. in some of these episodes, right? So that people, as we use these terms, they, they're maybe a little more informed. Awesome. Um, when we talk about an eating disorder, mm-hmm. just simply kind of what does that even mean? Yeah, so there's a difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder. So many and probably most people in this day and age do have disordered eating, which is just weird fad diets and gym obsession and food obsession and just all of that. But when it becomes an actual eating disorder, it's kind of beyond your control at that point, honestly. It becomes an addiction. It's something you can't just... It's an actual problem that's affecting your life in a negative way and consuming your life. Okay. Uh, that's an interesting distinction there. I yeah. think it's good to make, yeah. right? And then there's different types of eating disorders. Mm-hmm. I think 
you know, before this conversation, I know of two. I know of anorexia mm-hmm. and bulimia. I would imagine most people listening are probably the same way. For sure. Let's define those two and what am I missing? Yeah, so it's interesting too because, so I was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa restricting type. So okay. there's different like subcategories too. Uh-huh. So, I mean, typical anorexia though, you don't eat. You restrict your caloric intake. Bulimia is typically you try to do that and then you lose control and you binge and then you purge whether that's vomiting or exercising and then you restart the cycle of trying to restrict and then you lose control and you binge again but um there's even just binge eating disorder which a lot of people don't know Uh that's that's an eating disorder just strict binging you don't try to restrict you don't purge well then again everyone's situation looks different sure um another one that a lot of people aren't aware of is orthorexia which is just clean eating and working out obsession to this point that it's very unhealthy really so yeah huh yeah you know it's it's funny as we talk about this right like these are extremes Mm -hmm. where the whole point of this podcast is being in the middle right (laughs) after we talk about politics which like we're divisive we're extreme but really, to have a good life a lot of times, you've got to find that balance. 100%. A moderation in all things. I've not found one thing in life that that doesn't apply to. Moderation in all things. Too much of anything is not good. Yeah. So I think that's important to note. So, And I actually, in studying for this, right, the different types of anorexia mm-hmm. is restricting or the bulimia side of mm-hmm. things, which can fall under that umbrella. Yeah. And so you were in the restricting. Mm-hmm. So... Tell me, how does that start? I think most people probably couldn't even relate to just like, oh, I'm not going to eat. Like, yeah. How did that begin? Yeah, it's it's funny looking back. It's like I did, I do think I had a distinct thought of like, okay, I'm going to like start losing weight. Um, but it wasn't like I'm going to have an eating disorder and I'm going to be sick. A lot of it's just like the, sub, the subconscious stuff though. Um, and that's... Yeah, that's one misconception, which I know we'll get into, is eating disorders are not choices. I didn't want to become ill and addicted to this thing that controlled my life, but I just wanted to lose weight. Subconsciously, I learned, though, what it was, is because it soon switched from just wanting to lose weight to look better, even though I really didn't need to. It switched into this, like, I want to look sick and scary, and I don't even want to look appealing. Like, I want to lose so much weight, I look awful. And that was my subconscious of, like, if people knew and know how sick I am on, or if people can see how sick I am on the outside, they will understand how sick I am on the inside. It was like my cry for help. Cause like I said, I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know how to let people know I wasn't okay. And people weren't catching on because I just always had up this, this mask. Wow. And so it was like my subconscious way of like getting the help I needed. It was a cry for help. That's really what it was. And I didn't, I didn't know that until I spent hours in therapy and that we discovered that. Yeah, I think that's a that's a major misconception, yeah, right? Because I think most people think with an eating disorder that it's a vain type of thing, sure. right? Of how do you look and you want to look like this so you stop eating to lose weight, right? Mm-hmm. It's so much more than that, which from what you told me, explain that. It's there's there's more beneath it. So I'm sure there's a lot of girls that wake up and say, I want to be anorexic. I want that attention or I want to be bulimic. But people that have just that desire usually doesn't last because it's not easy to starve yourself. It's not yeah. e- easy to live that lifestyle. 
it becomes an actual problem, an actual eating disorder, an actual addiction when it's a coping mechanism. So it's not really about the food. It's not really about the losing weight. There's always something deeper and it's just portraying itself. And I want to lose weight or I want a better body or I don't, I'm scared of that kind of food. It's always this deeper stuff, this deeper, these deeper issues, mental and emotional issues that a lot of the time us girls suffering or us, anyone suffering, aren't even aware of what those are. And so that's yeah. why in therapy is such an important part of getting out of the eating disorder, just because you realize what you might be struggling with that you weren't even aware of. That's just stuffed so deep down inside yeah. you. It's portraying itself as wanting to change your physical appearance. So this started for you as more of, you could simplify it down to the bank. You wanted to lose mm -hmm. weight, right? Did you need to lose weight? No, I was, I mean, I'm five one and I've always been active, competitively dancing. I mean, yeah. I was very good shape. So no, I, <laughs> I did not, but I do think I didn't, I couldn't see that I didn't need to in my yeah. mind. I did want to. So, so it kind of started there. You find yeah. out later on, there was obviously more to it than mm -hmm. that. Um, talk to us about that initial like all of a sudden you st did it happen all at once did you just stop eating like that's what i struggle to understand yeah i think just because i was already dancing so much i was so physically active there really wasn't much room for me to cut out any intake and i cut out quite a bit i just in my mind was like okay i'm gonna put myself on this meal plan and i started checking labels of things and checking calories and I would be like okay I can eat these two graham crackers throughout the day and then I can have like this for dinner so I like had this calorie set up in my mind um but it went pretty quick because like I said I there really wasn't room for much cutting out yeah and then I went pretty drastic to like eating hardly nothing and I just had all this <laughs> willpower that just like forced myself to do that and so it it pretty much went zero to 100 in like a week and it was yeah pretty okay so tell me about that week when did people start noticing how did that become a thing yeah it's it's so weird looking back at the timeline like trying to figure that out i do think it was probably end of april beginning of may that that it like really started full force and i mean not and what year was this just for our listeners this was let's see i was 17 so six years ago okay. so 2014 yeah okay um and really i mean just even after i would say three weeks a month of me like making that transition people were like noticing the weight loss and yeah what did people Making say? Comments. I think the first comment I got was just like, your legs look so good today or something. I don't even think they really noticed. Maybe I'd been losing weight or maybe they did ask about that. I don't really remember, but it was a positive comment. My yeah. legs looked really good. That was like the first positive comment. And positive comments didn't last very long. It, it very soon turned into like my dance coach pulling me aside and being like I can I can see your whole sternum like are you okay are you eating and I would just brush it off yeah oh no I'm totally fine I'm totally fine she's like okay just just want to make sure I don't know if she bought it or not or um yeah I remember my doctor I had I had a doctor's appointment because I broke my toe and we needed an x-ray it wasn't healing and 
the doctor looked at my weight and was like, I don't know if she got, I think she wrote that down wrong. Like, let's go double check. So it was a pretty drastic difference from when I had been in there last, which wasn't long ago. And so she kind of asked me if I was eating and keeping my food in and what was going on. And I thought I had everyone fooled because once again, I was just like, oh no, yeah, I'm totally fine. She was like, okay, she seemed convinced. But I remember finding a note on my, like next to my mom's phone on this like sticky note about a eating disorder therapists and treatment centers and the doctor like called my mom and left a voice message. So the concern started pretty immediately. So the positive comments very quickly turned into comments of like concern and Are you okay? worry. Yeah. So what was that first then experience like of, did you ever ask for help or was that forced no. upon you? What happened? Yeah. In fact, it's so funny because like I said, I've learned now it really was my subconscious, like begging for help. But when people would confront me like that, I would panic. I'd be like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I need to fool them. They're on to me. Like, I want to keep this up. I, I didn't want help. I didn't think I needed help. So yeah, the first time I went to treatment was definitely like forced into it. And I remember even still being like, I don't have a problem. I was sitting there in like the intake room where they do all your initial labs and EKGs and all all that stuff. And they brought my parents in to say goodbye. And I was like, don't make me do this. Like, let me go home. Like, I promise I can, I can fix this. Cause I thought I would, I would walk into that unit with all these girls with eating disorders and be like, Oh, she's, she doesn't have an eating disorder. She's (laughs) faking this. I didn't think I had a problem. I thought, I thought I was fine. I thought I was going to be looked at as like a phony or something. And I don't think it was until I got out of treatment that first time and then was getting ready to go back the second time that I realized, yeah, this is a problem very beyond my control. And this is like actually, actually a problem. So explain to me, what does treatment look like? How does that work? Yeah. So it's your typical like rehab, really. I mean, the treatment center I went to was strictly girls with eating disorders. So sometimes people go to treatment centers where it's people have all sorts of different issues they need help with. Um, But yeah, it's, I mean, you have care techs checking on you every 15 minutes, initially that they can see you, you're alive, you're breathing. Um, Oh, I don't even know where to begin with what treatment's like. (laughs) It's it's like being in jail, honestly. Like you're like locked in there. You have all these set strict set rules. Um, you don't get ready to go to bed by yourself. You don't go to the bathroom with the door locked and shut. It's you're, it's very, very controlled environment. Did you, is it suddenly like, okay, now just start eating a lot of food or here's a regular diet. Like how did you go from not eating, you know, at all or very little Mm -hmm. to all of a sudden back to a healthy, regular diet? Yeah, that's a good question. So they do have a structured schedule throughout the day so it's like breakfast after breakfast you have a group which is like therapy yeah and then you have snack and then um another group and then lunch so it's like you have three meals three snacks a day and everyone's meal plan is individualized so when you first get there if you haven't been eating they put you on refeeding which is very closely monitored and it's not quite a normal portions yet because if you just jump into eating normally it can actually kill you it's called refeeding syndrome it happened to people in the war who were being starved not by choice you know so they monitor you super closely to make sure your body's like accepting food fine and everything and then they slowly increase it so everyone has a dietitian like 
you know, assigned to them and you meet with that dietitian a few times a week and um, I had to do weight restoration. So they, once we got off refeeding, then we would start increasing just as, as my body needed. It's kind of interesting how that happens too. It's like you'll, your body will gain weight and then your metabolism will get used to that meal plan and plateau. So they need to increase your meal plan again and increase your calories. And then that, that keeps happening. And, and by the, the end, opposite of a weight loss program. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And by the end you're eating like a madman, like a football player, like it's insane, but it's like your body, like, but before the next meal, you're like actually hungry again. Cause your metabolism is just revved up. So you experience hunger again for the first time because your body's not used to that and all of a sudden your body's used to food and your metabolism is working again and it's terrifying but and then they slowly decrease you once you reach the weight they need you to be at and then they set a maintenance meal plan for you and it's all very calculated yeah (laughs) so you talk about the kind of gratification that came from seeing weight come off yeah what is the mental side now of seeing weight come back on Honestly, now it's, it's a lot better than what it was. Yeah. What it was in treatment was the most horrific thing. Cause not only are you used to being this certain amount of weight, you were then suddenly and very fastly brought up to a new weight that is so foreign to you. It's like, I literally doubled my body weight. And so In treatment. Yes. You doubled your body weight. Yeah. Now, I know we're not specifically talking about Mm -hmm. numbers and weight and that, but I think that gives a really good feel to our listeners of one, how much it was needed. Yeah. And two, how much that treat, how how long of a period was it for you to double your body weight? Probably like four months. Oh my god. Like not long. It's crazy. And to also put it into perspective, they take you to your healthy minimum. And then what your body does after that's up to your body, whether your body naturally gains a little more weight, which is actually what happened when I had officially doubled my weight. It wasn't where I was just at my minimum, but my minimum wasn't enough for me genetically. It's like, because who really is at their healthy minimum? If they lose two pounds, they're underweight, you know, (laughs) not very many people rest there naturally. So yeah, once they took me there and then my body naturally gained a little bit more weight than it needed to, to be in its own happy place, that's when I had doubled it. But yeah, so not only am I, I was unhappy with this starved body and I could still see areas I needed to improve or lose more weight Mm -hmm. from. Now I'm twice that weight and it's just like something I'm not used to. You're just, you, you're so uncomfortable in your own skin. Yeah. It's, it's really hard, but now I have a pretty, pretty good relationship with food and my body and exercise and everything. And so Hmm. I think I have a good understanding now of if I didn't, if I were to notice myself gain weight, it would be like, well, I guess that's what my body needed for whatever reason. You know, I, 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 I trust my body and I listen to my body and I have a great relationship with it. So, so you come out of treatment four months, double your weight, problem solved, everything good, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we know it's obviously not that you tell us about that journey yeah. then. This doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Like what was the that stretch like then? Well, so they really, really push to to keep you in treatment as long as they can because they the professionals realize your body, until you are at a healthy weight, your mind can't start the healing. Because when you're so malnourished and you're underweight everything is just about getting your body working again. And then once it's finally at a good 
place and functioning well, then your mind can start the healing. But insurance companies don't see that. They see she's at a healthy weight. She's probably good to go. And that's why probably most patients at treatment centers are return patients. Most people you meet there, they're on their fourth stay. You know, rarely is it someone's first time in treatment. And it's just because they don't, they're not getting the actual help they need. They're, they're getting help gaining weight and then they're kicked out of there by their insurance. Hmm. Yeah. And I think of it like that TV show we used to watch, The Biggest Loser, right? Oh, yeah. That reality TV show, right? Bring all these people in and they gain, or they lose this massive weight mm-hmm. in such a quick amount of time. But then the challenge of keeping that off, right? And that yeah. they can. Yeah. So it's almost, it's the inverse of that. 100%. How many times then did you go back to treatment and when was it at its worst? Yeah, so it was definitely at its worst my last time. Um, which I went to treatment three times to inpatient three times. And I thankfully had new insurance that time, which I think is one of the biggest blessings. And so my last treatment stay was an entire year. Wow. Yeah. And so I honestly now look at that as a blessing. I'm like, who gets the opportunity to put their entire life on hold, have their parents pay or their insurance company pay $900 a day for a year for you to sit in a facility and attend treatment, I mean, attend therapy all day long. I now feel like my mental and emotional capability is far beyond what a lot of people will ever have the opportunity of having theirs at just because I have had thousands upon thousands of hours of therapy and not a lot of people get that opportunity. Mm-hmm. I look at that now as a complete opportunity because it's like I, I would never be as emotionally and mentally healthy as I am if it wasn't for that. Yeah. You know, you're forced to get in tune with yourself, forced to work on yourself, forced to learn about mental health. And yeah. Yeah. Tell me, you you talked about in our prep for this episode, the last time you went in that basically Mm -hmm. you were in the doctor and the doctor said like, I can't send you home. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was interesting was how you said your mom reacted to that. Tell me about your family and loved ones. Like how did they handle this? Oh, I feel so bad. My poor mother is traumatized. I mean, she she couldn't sleep. She always was worried that she'd come to find me in the morning and I wouldn't be I wouldn't wake up. You know, they yeah. they were just scared to death. Scared to death because they were just watching me pretty much die in front of their eyes. I remember I was actually reading one of my old journals the other day and I forgot about this, but one of my best friends her mom told my mom this, but I guess she was telling her mom, she was crying to her mom and she said, mom, I'm watching my best friend kill herself. And so, yeah, my poor mom is traumatized. I mean, even to this day, if I like don't eat as much at dinner, cause I'm just not as hungry. She's like, why didn't you eat as much? Why don't you want dessert tonight? What's going on? I'm like, I promise I'm fine. <laughs> I'm just listening to my body, but I can't blame her. You know, she's so mm-hmm. scared. She never wants to experience that again. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was really rough on my family and yeah. Yeah. They were very supportive. Yeah. Very sounds supportive. like it. And okay. So let's ask this question. And I, cause I think this is a good place to do it of say, you know, you talked about your dance teacher mm-hmm. saying I can see your sternum or the, you know, different yeah. people that reached out. What I would not have any idea what to say mm-hmm. in that type of situation. Right. It's almost like I compare to, a guy's worst nightmare, anyone's worst nightmare, is going up to someone and being like, oh my gosh, congratulations on your... I didn't know you were pregnant. <laughs> yeah. And then being like, I'm not pregnant. Yeah. And then you're just like, 
I'm gonna go just, I'm gonna go jump off a cliff, right? Like, I can't overcome that embarrassment. We're so worried about saying the wrong thing that we say Mm -hmm. nothing. How can we help support people? Obviously, it's specific to this, but I think this will relate to any sort of mental illness, depression. What do you recommend? I honestly think this is such a hard question, which I do get a lot, but people won't and can't get better until they want to. And so I think a lot of people struggle with wanting to intervene and letting people know how worried they are and how much they need help. But I honestly think the best thing you can do is just let them know you love them, let them know you're there for them, and let them know what they contribute to the world and how needed they are. I really think that's, those are the things that made the biggest difference to me. Because if someone came up to me and was just really grilling me on how much I need help and how worried they are and how not okay I am, I would just be like, you don't know anything. Because I thought I was invincible. (laughs) That did nothing. That didn't help me at all. In fact, it almost like (laughs) motivated me to prove them wrong and just get worse and not die. And you know what I mean? So I really think the biggest, the biggest thing you could do is just let people know how loved they are and how needed they are and how the characteristics you admire about them. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's hard though because, like I said, people won't and can't get better until they want to. Yeah, I think it's hard. I relate with that because I am a problem solver. Yeah. I'm a natural born problem solver, right? So like the minute you start looking at a person as a problem to be solved, that that's not a good conversation mm-hmm. to have. And especially like looking at you before you're going to treatment, the answer is really easy to everyone else. You need to eat more. Yeah. You know, like, why are you doing that? Stop doing this and you'll be okay. Yeah. But I, I think when you talk about that misconception of this really being a mental illness. 100%. As opposed to, I want to look better. Mm-hmm. That changes yeah. the perspective. Yeah. It's, it's an addiction, which a lot of people do not see or realize or understand. But my, my parents can vouch for that. I mean, most parents probably haven't seen their daughter having a full-on anxiety attack and a hyperventilating overeating a 120 bowl of oatmeal, calorie bowl of oatmeal, you know? So it's like it... You were hyperventilating because you had to eat that. Yes, yes. And it's like even... I could even be in a place where I wanted to eat. Where I was like, yeah, that sounds good and I want to eat that. But it was not a choice I had. It's like debilitating and crippling anxiety. And it only got that bad because I let it get that bad. You know, the longer you let it go on, the worse it is. And in treatment, we would also talk about how it's it's like a high. It's You lose those first five pounds and it's like a drug high. But the next time you lose five pounds, it's not enough. You need to lose 15 the next time. And it's like, yeah, it's like a drug. You build up a tolerance to it. You need more to get that high again. You need to lose more weight to get that high again. You need to cut out more calories to get that eating disorder high again that we learned about. And it was a very real thing. And then it comes down to the point where you're so hungry because you haven't eaten in so long and even eating an apple, like it didn't even, it didn't matter what it was. It could have been a piece of pizza or an apple and it was like equally as debilitating because it was just the thought of eating at all. Wow. Yeah. So those are some serious thought patterns to Mm -hmm. change, right? Mm -hmm. Like the thought of looking at an apple and being like, oh, I can't even imagine eating that. Yeah. So you said the last time you went through treatment was your worst. Mm -hmm. Let's, how do we get to where we are? Tell me about when was your breakthrough? Yeah, so it was 
couple months after I had left treatment. So that's the thing. Time is such, such a big factor. And I was blessed to be able to stay in treatment for a whole year. A mm -hmm. lot of people don't get that opportunity. Their insurance doesn't allow that. But because you have to rewire all those thought patterns in your brain, it takes time and it takes patience. But even after spending a year in treatment, I got out and I immediately wanted to lose weight again. And so I started skipping snacks and cutting out sides at meals and trying to mess with my meal plan that I had set up for me. Um, but my body actually did the opposite of what I had usually done, which usually would have lost weight, but that's what I was used to. But I started to gain a little bit of weight. And that was my body's way of saying, we're not doing this again. And it was putting on protective layers because it realized it couldn't trust me. Yeah. My body did not trust me. And my body was freaked out that we were going to go down this road again. <laughs> and so started to protect me. Um, and then, so that was frustrating. And then pretty short notice, I ended up going on this three week international trip with friends in Europe. And I had never been out of the country before. And so leading up to that, I was like, I don't, I don't want my whole trip to be consumed by when I can eat next and what I'm going to eat next and how many calories is in this because that's how my mind works. Yeah. That's how minds work when they're so in the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Every thought revolves around food. When you can eat next, what you're going to eat next, how much calories is in that. Okay, then what are you going to eat after you eat that and how many hours in between is it going to be? It's like that's all you think about all day. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And so leading up to our trip, I started practicing eating a little bit more normally so I could do it with as little as anxiety as possible on the trip. And then once we got there, it honestly was a lot easier than I expected. But I think it's because I was with these people who had such great relationships with food and were just enjoying themselves. And especially after being in treatment for a year, I'm used to being around other girls who were freaked out by food. And so it was, it was just a breath of fresh air. And so I was eating very normally and enjoying myself. And it was probably like five days into the trip or so. And we went on a boat ride along the coast of Italy, the Amalfi Coast, okay. at sunset. And for the first time in probably four years, I actually felt happy for the first time. And it was like the most distinct moment. It wasn't just like, oh, over the course of time, I kind of was happy again. It was like, no, a distinct moment. It was like we're riding along the coast and it's all lit up with lights and I just like I feel free like I actually feel happy and I haven't experienced this in who knows how long and so I just decided I never I never wanted to let that feeling go and I kind of thought to myself do I feel happy because I'm in a different country or do I feel happy because I'm actually taking care of myself yeah and that's when I kind of realized like the choice it's up to me I can fight to let this happiness stay or I can let it go and just let this be a memory. And I decided I wanted to feel that for the rest of my life. Yeah. I love that. I think in all of our lives we have defining moments. Yeah. We have times that we could point to where, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, oh, I was, now I was feeling it right there. Yeah. I had this awakening or experience or whatever you want to call it. And I think you just put it really well of the challenge often becomes, okay, how do I like bottle up that feeling to then feel it all the time? Yeah. Right. If you can't be happy on a boat off the coast of Amalfi at yeah. sunset 
Like, you got big problems. Yeah. I think most of us could be happy there. But how can you get that similar feeling in just the day-to-day yeah. and find that balance and find that happiness? So how did you figure out how to take that being okay, being happy, and bring it home with you? I think the biggest thing was taking care of myself, listening yeah. to myself. And it took took a lot of practice, you know, trial and error. Have I been that happy every day since? Absolutely not. Like it's, recovery is not linear, but even if you're not trying to recover from something, life just isn't linear. You have good days, you have bad days, you have good months, you have bad months. That's just how life goes. But I think the biggest thing for me to keep that feeling around was taking care of myself, having a good relationship with my body and with food and with exercise, which took a lot of practice. It didn't come easy. And even if I had a good week, you know, that didn't mean the next week was going to be good either. Um, But then even now that I do have a good relationship with all those things and it doesn't take as much consistent and constant effort to maintain a good relationship with those things, I can still find myself back in that feeling of just almost depression, you know, almost feeling that come back on. But you really, you can always choose your narrative. That's something I've learned. And if I do have a hard week or a hard day, I'll honor that. I'll let myself feel sad. I'll explore my emotions. I'll, you know, discover what's going on. What's going on. I'll journal about it. I'll let my my mind get everything out. And then once I cry or sulk as long as I need to, then I work on feeling better. I do what I know makes me feel good and cheers me up. I think it's very important that we honor our emotions and let our emotions out but we don't let them run the course of the rest of our life. We can we can change the narrative, you know? Yeah. We can flip it. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and I think one thing we all have in common as humans on this earth is we all have issues, 100%. right? We're all going through things. The severity might vary at different times in our lives. And some are more visual, mm-hmm. right? Some are more apparent. When you, you know, your body weight is low enough that you could double it in a couple months and to be healthy, everyone can see that, right? But there's so many things as well that people are going through that we would never know, that we Mm -hmm. could never see. And I think it's such a good reminder, you know, just in being a better person to remember that, to have that in our minds. One thing I really admire about you is that people respond to difficulties and hardships and trials in different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think the people that, you know, can do the most good in the world are the ones that take that and turn that into how can I help others because of that. You have an amazing platform, like just even on your Instagram, right, of people that follow you because of your attitude, your perspective, your light, right? And so tell me, what do you feel today like your message is to people listening or to your Instagram, whoever it might be, because of what you've been through? so hard to narrow it down to like one thing um I think a big a big thing is just like self-acceptance no matter where you're at will get you way further than perfecting yourself so you can love yourself will ever get you I think that's a big thing I I love to teach people you don't have to love yourself at least just accept yourself. Start there. Trying to love yourself when you don't even like yourself, that's a big jump. So if you're in this place where you're 
battling with yourself for whatever reason, don't make loving yourself the goal. Make accepting yourself the goal. Just mere acceptance. And then you can work on loving yourself from there. Hmm. But, yeah, <laughs> cut it down into baby steps, you know. Um, but, yeah, you will find so much more joy and fulfillment in accepting yourself than you will in changing yourself for what you think will make you happier or others happier. I know firsthand losing the weight or doing this or doing that doesn't ever fulfill you. It's there. It's never enough. It's never enough. But accepting yourself will be enough. Changing yourself, there's always something else you can change too, or you could you could do that better, or this better. You're. It's a never ending cycle. You're always going to be chasing it. If if your self love and self acceptance is contingent on a body weight or whatever it is, it's not going to fulfill you once you're there. Yeah, man. This episode to me is kind of turning pretty cool with this podcast because we talked so much on the podcast about being kind to others mm -hmm. and having respect and empathy yeah. and love and listening to others but you've got to do the same for yourself 100%. right like i think we often we need to be more kind to 100%. ourselves it's so easy to have empathy for others but where where's that empathy for ourselves when we mess yeah. up or we say something dumb or we make a fool of ourselves you know yeah. we're so hard on ourselves yeah I'll we, cut other people slack all day long, yeah. but if I make mistakes, like you idiot, what yeah, am I doing? Yeah, one hundred percent. And we we deserve that same the slack as we give other people, one hundred percent, if not even more. You know. Yeah. I man, I, I really think that is a a cool message, and I hope all those listening right realize that part of you know we talk about being in the middle. We're just all in the middle of life. Mm -hmm. We're all going through challenges, trials. Let's cut each other slack. Let's cut ourselves slack. I think this is an awesome reminder for all of us. Yeah. And I really appreciate you being willing to share, being willing to open up. And I hope that this is something that, you know, your followers that have heard your story, but maybe not been able to hear it all the way through. Mm -hmm. They listen to this today and go, oh man, I have, you know, I thought of Courtney here, but now even more respect yeah. for Courtney and what you've done. So thanks for coming on. Yes. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And, uh, wish you all the best in all your next endeavors and uh, i hope that that amalfi coast feeling <laughs> we all can just channel and keep that going so i end every episode the same way clowns to the left me jokers to the right here i am stuck in the middle with you i would have jumped in thought about I, I, yeah, singing i forgot the words can, should we try it again okay wait clap wait clowns to the left of me you don't have to sing that. Okay, just sing. Stuck in the middle stuck of the middle Okay, of cool. Let's we'll, we'll do it. We'll do a little key change. <laughs> Clowns to love me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck, stuck in the middle with you. There we go. All right. Thank you. We'll see you next time, guys. Clowns to the left.